All right, well, I hope you found Revelation chapter 8 as we continue in the book of Revelation. I thought it would be important for us just to remember a little bit about how we ought to read Revelation. John was given visions, and these visions contain sounds and images, and John wrote down what he heard and saw. But the things that he heard and saw were symbols. The symbols represented real things, but he didn't see the real thing and then describe it in symbols. He saw symbols, and then he described what he saw. He, he described these symbols, but he did write them down with enough detail and enough explanation that we can understand what he wants us to know. So let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In Revelation 5, John was given a vision of a lamb. Now, there isn't really a lamb. The lamb is a symbol for Jesus. And Jesus is real. But John didn't see Jesus, the man, and then write down that he saw a lamb. He saw a lamb. And then he wrote down that he saw a lamb. But he wrote it with enough detail and enough explanation that we can understand without any confusion that the lamb is a symbol for Jesus. And I say all this because we are going to see a lot of symbols and imagery in our text today. And I think it's important that we remember these things as we see all these images. Uh, Jesus was giving John this vision of the future but he didn't give John a vision of what the future would literally look like as if he was playing a movie reel in front of him. He gave him a vision, a symbolic vision, and John wrote down the symbols that he saw in this vision. But again, he wrote them with enough detail and enough explanation that we can understand what he, John, wants us to know about these symbols and what they represent, even if he doesn't always give us all the details that we would like or all of the explanation of everything we might want to know. And uh, so anyway, with that in mind, uh, we'll, we'll read our, our text for today, but let's keep those things in mind as we, uh, as we see these, these symbols before us. So our text today is Revelation chapters 8 and 9. Normally we make a practice of standing when we read our, uh, our sermon text, uh, just due to the length of this, uh, so that we don't have any distractions from focusing on God's Word. Uh, you can remain seated, but follow along with me as I read Revelation chapters 8 and 9. The Holy Spirit says, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail, 
and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people and the, uh, their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent. 
of the works of their hands. Nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The judgment of God is not a popular topic. You're probably not going to hear a pastor talk about how excited he is to preach an eight-week series on the judgment of God. Can't wait to tell everybody about hell. The judgment of God is often a topic that is mishandled. Some overemphasize God's judgment in various ways, for instance, acting like every single bad thing that ever happened is the direct result of an individual's particular sin. Uh, then, at the other extreme, some underemphasize God's judgment and even deny that hell is real. But however unpopular God's judgment may be, and however much misinformation there may be out there, passages like Revelation 8 and 9 remind us that we cannot avoid God's judgment. We can't avoid God's judgment. God is perfectly holy and righteous. Mankind has rebelled against this God and has broken His righteous law, and a sinful world deserves the judgment of a holy God. And God will bring judgment on every sin against Him to the praise of His glory. God will carry out a final judgment at the end of this age, when Jesus returns, Scripture tells us that He will judge the living and the dead. The unrighteous will go away into eternal punishment, and the righteous will go into eternal life. And before that final judgment, God brings partial judgment on the world to warn about that final judgment that is coming. He announces that His final judgment is coming. He warns the world so that they may repent. But here's the sad truth of Revelation 8 and 9. Hell can't get anyone into heaven. Hell can't get anyone into heaven. Though the future judgment of God should lead to repentance, it doesn't. Though hell on earth should lead to repentance, it doesn't. It's not a pleasant message, but it's a fact that we need to be confronted with that hell can't get anyone into heaven. We're going to see three aspects of this truth in our text today, but before we get to that message, we need to pause and hear a call 
to pray in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 8. A call to pray. Um, This is a bit of an aside in some ways because these first five verses of chapter 8 are a bridge between two sections. There's some overlap here. On the one hand, these five verses introduce a new section, the seven trumpets, the lamb opens the seventh seal, John sees the angels given the seven trumpets, and then we read already how those first six trumpets are blown, and we'll look at those trumpets in a minute. But these five verses are also the end of the seven seals that we started to look at a couple weeks ago. In chapter 5, we saw how God the Father is on the throne and he was holding a scroll that was sealed with seven seals. And that scroll contained God's sovereign plan of judgment and redemption. Then in chapter 6, the Lamb, Jesus, began to symbolically open those seven, uh, each one of those uh, seven seals. The first five seals focused on things that happened uh, all throughout the period of time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The sixth seal was the announcement that the day of the Lord was coming. It was the, it's time for Christ to come to bring his final judgment. And now in chapter 8, we get the seventh seal, which marks the end of the age, the end of tribulation, final consummation of God's plan of judgment and redemption. Now, if the seventh seal is the end, why does Revelation keep going? Well, it's because Revelation is not a sequence of events in chronological order. The visions that Jesus gave to John uh, came in cycles, And as John writes about his visions, he describes the same events and the same periods of time over and over and from different angles. Uh, Notice how in verse 5 of chapter 8, John then uh, tells us that there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is a sign marking the end. And we'll see this sign a total of three times at the end of three different cycles of judgment. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And what this shows us is that while all three of these series of visions uh, look at things from slightly different uh, angles and look at times at slightly different events, all three of these cycles run parallel to one another and they all end at that same point of lightning, thunder, earthquake, rumblings. So with this seventh seal, we come to the end of just one series of visions about the period between Jesus' first and second comings. So now let's consider uh, the end of this first series of judgments, the seals. First, when Jesus opens the seventh seal, there's silence in heaven for half an hour. Now, everything we've seen about heaven so far in Revelation has been noisy. I mean, there's loud declarations, loud voices, choirs singing praise. But at the end, there's 30 minutes of silence in awe of God's final judgment and redemption. John sees then an angel at the altar in the heavenly temple holding a golden censer containing 
the prayers of the saints. Now, in Revelation 6.10, we heard the souls of the saints under this altar making these prayers. They cried out for justice. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? They cried out, essentially, come, Lord Jesus. Just like we pray, come, Lord Jesus. And here in this image, John sees the prayers of the saints rise up like incense to God. And then the angel takes this censer full of prayer and he throws it on the earth. What an amazing picture of answered prayer. God breathes in our prayers and then the prayers are thrown on the earth. God's final justice and final salvation are direct answers to the prayers of the saints. Revelation 8, 1 through 5 is a call to prayer. So, saints, let's keep on praying. Let's keep on praying for justice and redemption. Let's keep on praying. Come, Lord Jesus, because the day is coming when God will transform the entire earth through our prayers. So keep on praying. Hear the call to prayer. Well, let's continue on and get to the main message of our passage today. And we're going to consider three different aspects of how hell can't get anyone into heaven. The first is that an unstable world can't get anyone into heaven. An unstable world can't get anyone into heaven. Starting in verse 6, John gets another vision of another series of judgments, the seven trumpets. And as I said a moment ago, these seven trumpets run parallel to the seven seals. They describe the the same basic period of time as the seven seals did, the time between Jesus' first coming and His second coming. If you know your Old Testament... You may remember another story that involves seven trumpets. When the Israelites were preparing to take the city of Jericho, they marched around the city for seven days. And for seven days, the priests blew seven trumpets. These trumpets were warnings. The blast of these trumpets were announcing that God was about to destroy the city of Jericho. Likewise here, these seven trumpet judgments announce that God is about to destroy the world. Uh, These trumpet judgments, the imagery within them should also remind you of the plagues that God sent on Egypt. When God saved His people from slavery in Egypt, He did so by these ten plagues, these ten great acts of judgment. And the plagues we see here in Revelation 8 and 9 are modeled after those. Uh, Just consider the first four. The first trumpet, hail and fire. The second trumpet, water into blood. The third trumpet, rivers undrinkable. The fourth trumpet, darkness. All of these visions John sees recall the plagues that God sent on Egypt. The target of each one of these judgments uh, in these first four Uh, trumpet judgments, notice is a different segment of nature. The earth and trees, the sea, the rivers and springs, 
the sun, moon, and stars, it seems that these are signs of God's judgment through nature. Uh, but notice that these judgments are only partial. A third of the earth, a third of the trees, over and over, a third, a third, a third. Uh, so God expresses His judgment, but He is kind to limit these judgments. They're partial. You know, we see God's judgment through the natural world all the time, but I'm afraid that we don't always recognize it as such. We see earthquakes, volcanic eruptions, landslides, hurricanes, floods, tsunamis, heat waves, droughts, wildfires. And like in the imagery that we see here, these things affect food supply. Uh, They disrupt the global economy. Uh, They turn people's lives upside down. They even result in death. And I think that as Christians, many Christians have some biblical categories about, uh, or uh, to think about these things. We know that creation is broken because of sin, and we know that God is sovereign over all things, but is it possible that we still consider God more passive than He really is? If we're not careful, it's easy to think like a deist who believes that God created the world but is no longer actively involved in it. He he spun it like a top and is just letting it spin out of control. We may believe that God allowed creation to become broken, but that everything's just sort of playing out as natural consequences, and God is just kind of watching it all as He allows everything to happen. But Revelation 8 reminds us that what we call natural disasters, what we call just kind of the general brokenness of creation because of sin, these things are not just simply consequences of forces of creation, but are often actually sent directly by God. Job 37, 11 to 13 says, He loads the thick cloud with moisture. The clouds scatter His lightning. They turn around and around by His guidance to accomplish all that He commands them on the face of the habitable world, whether for correction or for His land or for love, He causes it to happen. Psalm 148, verses 7 and 8 says this, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, storming wind, fulfilling His word. And then in Amos 3, 6, God says, Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? God commands the forces of nature. They accomplish His purposes. They do what they do because they are fulfilling His Word. God even sends disasters on the earth. Now, again, what I don't mean is that every hurricane or wildfire corresponds to a particular sin of the region that it strikes. 
What I do mean is that God sends judgment on the world, which is sinful in general, in order to warn the whole world about His coming wrath. So next time we see a so-called natural disaster, let's remember that God sovereignly directs nature. Don't just shrug it off thinking, well, yeah, the, the earth does that. Instead, may we hear the blast of a trumpet. When we see devastation caused throughout nature, may we be reminded about how much a holy God hates sin. When we see God's partial destruction of the earth, may we hear the warning that God's final judgment, that total destruction is coming. The judgment God brings on earth should lead to repentance. It should remind us not to get comfortable with this world. It's not stable. It should remind us to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But an unstable world can't get anyone into heaven. Second, a tormented soul can't get anyone into heaven. A tormented soul can't get anyone into heaven. So the last three trumpets are introduced in verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. That word woe means things are about to be bad for you. It's the opposite of the word blessed that we saw in Revelation 1-3. When you see blessed is the one, it means here's what someone looks like who's living their best life. Woe means here's what someone experiencing the worst thing that could happen looks like. John hears three woes, one for each of the last three trumpets. Uh, he, he says, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. As we've seen already in Revelation, those who dwell on the earth are unbelievers. So this announcement is signaling that these last three trumpets are going to make life bad for those who do not trust Christ. Chapter 9 begins with the fifth angel blowing the fifth trumpet. John sees a star fallen from heaven. And we've seen already in Revelation how stars are often symbols for angels. This angel is given permission to open the bottomless pit. And it seems that this idea of the bottomless pit is the same idea that Peter describes in 2 Peter 2.4 when he said, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So this angel is given permission then to open this, uh, this binding, open this bottomless pit. And what John sees then come out of this bottomless pit are locusts. 
And again, this brings to mind one of the plagues that came on Egypt. It's also based on the plague of locusts that the prophet Joel prophesied about, which was a warning about the coming day of the Lord. But the way John describes the appearance of the locusts, it's clear these are no ordinary locusts. The fact that they're coming out of the bottomless pit tells us these locusts are symbols for demons. Plus, John tells us that their king is the angel of the bottomless pit, Abaddon or Apollyon, which means destroyer. So this is the prince of demons who goes by a number of names like Beelzebul or Satan. See, these demons are given specific instructions. Look at verse 4 of chapter 9. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So these demons are told to harm people, but only those who don't have the seal of God. And so here we see the effect of the sealing that we looked at last week in chapter 7. In chapter 7, John saw angels who were about to bring judgment on the earth and the sea and trees, but first the servants of God had to be sealed. Well, just now in chapter 8, we've seen that judgment come on the earth and sea and trees. And now in chapter 9, we see that believers are sealed by God and thus protected from the harm that these demons do. If you glance at verses 5 and 6, you see how John describes their torment. Notice it is only for five months. Like with the other plagues we've seen, God mercifully limits the extent of this affliction Yet at the same time, it's so bad that it makes people want to die. This seems to be a kind of spiritual or psychological torment brought upon unbelievers through the agency of demons. It doesn't mean that we're necessarily talking about demon possession in the way that uh, you know, Hollywood portrays or in the way that even we see in, in the Gospels. Uh, but what it does mean is part of God's judgment on rebellious humans comes in the form of inner turmoil. There's a despair that comes from being separated from God. There's an anguish that comes from a meaningless life. There's a hopelessness about life, yet also a great fear of death. And as we look here at one of the effects of the death and resurrection and salvation of Jesus, believers, we should just pause here for sober gratitude for the protection of God that we see on display in these verses. Life on earth as a Christian is difficult, no doubt. We experience persecution. We experience the brokenness of creation. We experience difficulty like the rest of the world. Um, and we experience, again, difficulty that the rest of the world doesn't experience when we're persecuted for the sake of Christ. We even experience different kinds of spiritual suffering and psychological suffering. But what we see here is there is a kind of affliction that we are protected from in Christ. 
Yes, we wrestle against the rulers and authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places, but we can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. He's given us everything we need to withstand in the evil day, truth and righteousness and gospel readiness and faith and salvation and scripture and prayer. If we are sealed, if we have God's name on our foreheads, if we belong to him, we are safe from the torment that is described here. Now, torment like this should lead an unbelieving world to repentance. An experience of emptiness should make someone want to find out what can fill them. An experience of anguish should make someone seek out the one who can bring them relief. But a tormented soul can't get anyone into heaven. Finally, an abundance of death can't get anyone into heaven. So the first woe, the fifth trumpet, passed. Now comes the second woe, the sixth trumpet, described starting in verse 13. John hears about four angels released to kill a third of mankind. John saw 200 million horsemen going out to accomplish this killing. He sees this terrifying vision of 200 million horses with heads of lions and tails like serpents and fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. And again, likely what we're seeing here is a symbol of demonic agents like we saw before. And they kill a third of mankind in this vision. And like we saw in the thirds before, uh, shouldn't take this to be a literal third of mankind, but rather an indication that this judgment is partial. Nevertheless, this is a picture of an abundance of death. And an abundance of death like this should lead to repentance. Just like an unstable world should lead to repentance. And a tormented soul should lead to repentance. But the truth is, like those other things, an abundance of death can't get anyone into heaven. Listen, look at the tragic words of Revelation 9, 20, and 21 one more time. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons or idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Hell unleashed on earth is not enough to loosen sinful humans' grip on idolatry and immorality. In this context, by idolatry, I mean the failure to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And by immorality, I mean the failure to love your neighbor as yourself. You see those two sides of the law in their failure to repentance? The first and greatest command to love God, they didn't repent of worshiping demons and idols. The second greatest commandment to love neighbor as yourself, they didn't repent of their murders and sorceries and sexual immorality. 
Hell on, unleashed on earth is not enough to make sinful humans loosen their grip on idolatry and immorality. We all, as sinful people, are prone to these, to idolatry and immorality. The churches that John was writing to were being tempted by these idolatries and immoralities. Uh, the churches that John was writing to were compromising some of them with false religions and idolatry of their culture, and they needed to see this warning. They were giving in to the immoral practices of the people around them, and they needed to see this warning because all of us on our own are prone to idolatry and immorality. Humans are idol worshipers. If you're not a worshiper of Jesus, you need to understand you are worshiping something. We all devote ourselves to something as ultimate. But on our own, we don't treat the Creator as ultimate, the one who is ultimate as ultimate. Instead, we treat His creation or, or our creations as ultimate. We're idol worshipers on our own. Uh, humans also, because of our sinful nature, are immoral. You may not think of yourself as a bad person, but we are all sinners in comparison to the perfect God. Humans want to live their lives doing what they want to do. They want freedom so that they can just do whatever they want. They harm those who get in their way. They manipulate things so they can get what they want. They do whatever feels good. They take whatever they want. And in response to mankind's idolatry and immorality, God sends these trumpets of warning. They announce God's judgment is coming. They remind us that life is short and the end is near. They remind us that everything we do is under the watch of a righteous judge who controls the universe and that one day we will all be held accountable for everything we thought or said or done. But even though these plagues should lead to repentance, the unbelieving world sees all of these judgments of God and they still do not repent. Just like Pharaoh's heart was hardened by the plagues on Egypt, so these plagues do not produce repentance in the hearts of those who dwell on the earth. You know, when... when natural disasters or sufferings or death occurs, it's common for Christians to think, well, these things will get the world's attention. Maybe this tornado will get people back into church. Maybe COVID will lead to revival. Maybe that diagnosis will bring him to God. But the sad truth of Revelation 9 is that disasters do not lead to revival. Suffering does not lead to salvation, and tragedy does not lead to repentance. Yet, God does want people to repent. God is sending partial judgments, mercifully limiting these judgments, waiting to bring about the final judgment, holding off on the final judgment because He's allowing people time to repent. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
So then how can people repent? The only way anyone will ever repent of their sins and escape the wrath to come is by the power of the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. People must hear the gospel and the Spirit must open their eyes to behold its truth. They must hear that they are sinners and the Spirit must give them a desperate need for God. They must hear the call to repent and the Spirit must grant repentance. They must hear the good news that Jesus saves and the Spirit must give them the free gift of faith. They must hear the gospel of the glory of Christ and the Spirit must shine into their heart to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sinners can repent. There is a power strong enough and it's the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if this is true, if it is true that only the Holy Spirit can change a heart, then we must pray. We must pray. If you want to see repentance, don't rely on suffering and tragedy. Rely on the Savior. Rely on the Spirit. Apart from the work of the Spirit, suffering does not soften hearts. Suffering hardens hearts. So ask God to do what only He can do. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Ask the Lord to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone can change a leper's spots and melt a heart of stone. So pray for God to do what only He can do. And if it is true that people will change only through the power of the gospel, then we must share the gospel. We must share the gospel. We must let people know what is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And when you do share the gospel, call people to repentance. Repentance. The call of the gospel is not here's your ticket out of hell. The call of the gospel is deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. A person has not had their heart changed by Jesus until their life is changed by Jesus. The gospel is not fully received until the person has repented of the works of their hands as we see in this text. Until they've given up worshiping demons and idols. The gospel is not fully received until a person has repented of their murders and sorceries and sexual immorality and thefts. The gospel is received when I look at the lamb who was slain and I say, I don't want my sin anymore. I want the Savior who died for my sin. I don't want to be my own Lord anymore. I want the King of kings as my Lord. So I wonder... 
Do you need to repent today? It might be that even now in this moment, the Holy Spirit has the power to change hearts is at work exposing an area that you need to repent of. Are you holding on to idolatry, making something other than God ultimate in your life? Are you holding on to immorality, doing what you want to do instead of what God wants you to do? God wants to warn you today. He judges sin. He wants you to look at Revelation 8 and 9 and see in vivid detail just how much He hates sin. He wants to call you in His mercy to let go of the sin, to turn away, to repent, and to trust in Jesus who saves us from the wrath to come. If the Holy Spirit is working in your heart today, don't resist Him. Give up your sin and trust in Jesus who gives us mercy and forgiveness and cleansing and eternal life as a free gift through His death and resurrection. Hell can't get anyone into heaven, but Jesus can. An unstable world can't get anyone into heaven, but Jesus can. And He will bring everyone who trusts in Him into a new heaven and a new earth. A tormented soul can't get anyone into heaven, but Jesus can. And He protects all of His people from the attack of the enemy. An abundance of death can't get anyone into heaven, but Jesus can. And one day he will throw death itself into the lake of fire so that death shall be no more. So may these trumpets of warning call us to repentance. Call us to make ourselves ready for the coming of the King. And may we look forward to that day that we hear the last trumpet when the Lord will descend from heaven And we'll meet the Lord in the air. And we will always be with the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, it is hard to hear about your judgment. It is hard to consider the depth of our sin. But Lord, You are merciful to warn us of the wrath to come. You are gracious to give partial judgment and to show patience, desiring people to come to repentance and trust in Jesus. Lord, you are at work in the world to judge. You are at work in the world to warn. But by your grace, you are also at work in the world to save. And so, Lord, I pray that as we see warnings of judgment, as we see people living in idolatry and living in immorality, 
Lord, that it would drive us to pray. It would drive us to pray for repentance. It would drive us to pray for transformation. And it would drive us to share the gospel so that people might know your saving power. And Lord, I pray that these warnings would drive each of us to repent. That you would expose our immorality, our idolatry, the things on which your wrath is coming, and that we would say no. That we would rid ourselves of the passions of our former ignorance. And Lord, that we would instead embrace you as the greatest treasure of our hearts. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.